Welcome to the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm Jennifer Silliman, and this show is continuing the conversations started in the award-winning first-ever documentary film about maternal mental health. My journey as an advocate began through the power of storytelling. With this podcast, I hope to create a community of women and professionals sharing their own powerful narratives to let others know they're not alone and help is out there. Keep in mind that some of the stories you will hear may be triggering, but it's important they be told. This podcast is not a replacement for professional help from a licensed medical provider. If you or someone you know is suffering due to a maternal mental health condition, please contact your medical provider or call or text message the Postpartum Support International Helpline at 1-800-944-4773. Now let's continue the conversation. Hi there, everyone, and welcome to another edition of the Dark Side of the Full Moon podcast. I'm here today with Stephen Diakili. I have been wanting to connect with Stephen for so long, so I am so excited to be able to talk with him today. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I think what we're going to do is just have you start out with sharing your story and, and talking about Alexis, and we'll just kind of go from there. You, you've done so much in this realm of advocacy work, and I really want to touch on that too. So go ahead and just share share your story with us. All right. So um, Alexis and I were, were super blessed. Um, we, we, you know, we were lucky when we found out we were pregnant because it was like literally the first time. Um, and I never realized until I got into this field how, you know, the struggles that people have trying to get pregnant uh, and how many of the, you know, close friends and relatives have, have suffered and, you know, just for years and years and some not able to conceive at all. But we were really blessed. Um, it was, it was easy. We got pregnant. She was, uh, a relatively seamless pregnancy, no real struggles. Um, she was, you know, glowing the whole time, like everyone says. And we, I, I think we kind of took it for granted. It was just like, Hey, this is, this is awesome. And planned for, you know, more kids as soon as she got pregnant, it's like, Oh, we got to get a bigger house. And, you know, just the, the normal, you know, things of, I guess, kind of like growing up and starting a family. And um, so we go through this perfect pregnancy and our daughter came eight days late. And I think the troubles really started in the delivery room. Um, It was a traumatic birth, code blue delivery. Our daughter's umbilical cord was wrapped multiple times around, uh, you know, around her neck and she had no slack to, to come out. And there was no doctor in the room. So it was myself, my wife, and, and one nurse. The nurse was holding one leg. I was holding the other. And um, the nurse was in the room, like, I think, 12 minutes before. And she just kept telling my wife, you know, you're, my wife kept saying, I have to push. I have to push. There's no way I can hold her in any longer. I have to push. And the doctor just said, um, you know, you're a first-time mom. This baby's not coming for two hours. And I have a high-risk delivery next door. And then I have multiples. Uh, twins after that, like you're third in line. So either, you know, hold the baby in for the next two hours and don't push. Um, or you can start pushing now and waste your energy, but the baby's not coming for two more hours. doesn't matter to me. And she just kind of turned around and went out, you know, left the room. And, you know, as soon as she left, Alexis is pushing and here comes Adriana and she kept coming out, but there was no slack. And, so it went from, you know, this anticipation we had um, and all this excitement to just fear because it was like, there's no doctor here. There's clearly a problem. And it just went into this state of, of panic. And the nurse is screaming for someone to grab scissors. And another nurse came in and got scissors. And when Adriana came out, um, you know, as most babies are when they're born, she was completely blue. And it went from no doctors to a room full of doctors. It had to, had to be a dozen people. And she, I remember, you know, when there's a code blue, that means either, you know, one of the lives is at risk, either mom or baby. And in this case, it was, it was Adriana, our, our daughter. And so I rushed over to the baby and I, I'll never forget her first cry. And I was like, oh my God, you know, she's okay. And as soon as she did it, I, I remember looking back at my wife, at, you know, in this bed and it was like, her eyes were glassed over and it was just, it was like the end 
of Alexis as I or anyone else ever knew her. Um, I stayed in the hospital uh, for a couple of days with her until, well, until we left. And um, the day we got home, I mean, I would, I would say it's probably, you know, like most first time parents, we didn't have a clue what the heck we were doing. It was like, and we have this baby that's just crying nonstop and I'm holding her and then my wife's holding her. And my, my mother-in-law was actually in town for the first two weeks. Um, and she kind of held it together. She was, I don't think anything outside of the norm, you know, we had, you know, people would warn us, you know, look out for those baby blues and stuff like that. And, you know, she was struggling, but I don't think, or didn't know at the time, uh, how much she really was struggling. It was after my mother-in-law left things kind of really crumbled. Um, it's, it's really unfathomable uh, that, and looking back to see how quickly um, somebody that's always been so composed, so put together can just unravel to the point, you know, where, how our, how our story ended. Um, you know, she was, she struggled so much to breastfeed and it's something I always bring up because I cannot stand the pressure that is put on women to, to breastfeed. I mean, so much so that I would say, sweetheart, like, let's just get some formula. It's not worth it. And she, I just, this, this stigma around breastfeeding where if you don't do it, you're this bad mom. And I would tell her like, nobody knows we're at home. It's just the two of us. Nobody has to know. And even in the security of our own home, she felt this shame and she just could not do it. Um, and so she really started off, I think, with the, the first doctor's appointment was an appointment back at the hospital where we delivered. And it was with an LCSW that was a part of the OB practice that we delivered with that we chose at the, you know, at the beginning of the pregnancy. And I don't think either of us understood the the trouble she was in until we went to this appointment, um, she had this debilitating anxiety where she would just kind of put her hands around her neck and just kind of stroke down her chest. And when you would talk to her, she would like slowly back away from you. And she just would say, she always called me pop. And she would say, pop, I, you know, I don't know what to do to make this anxiety stop. I don't know. You know, for people that have never had anxiety, I mean, real anxiety, uh, it is just absolutely crippling and debilitating and you will do anything to make that stop that feeling and when we went to that appointment the this woman she was really kind she was of everyone that we saw without a doubt the most compassionate and actually she was very worried and very scared um and she had a daughter in another city that was going through the same thing and she was leaving the next morning to go visit her own daughter but she said you know you she was, she, that was when we found out that Alexis had PTSD from the traumatic birth experience. And I had always associated PTSD with, you know, soldiers or people that have been to war, you know, it, it not from childbirth and had no idea what it really meant or how to deal with it or anything. Um, I, and, and she really didn't either. So we left there with you know, coping mechanisms for the anxiety. And they, they seemed, well, they are as ridiculous as they seemed. One was counting from 100 to zero backwards in intervals of seven. Another was taking a, a shower as hot as you can put the water and bending over and holding your ankles. And it's like, not the easiest thing for a woman that just delivered a baby. Um, and then the other and I would say probably most effective one was to just hold ice cubes whenever you felt she felt an anxiety or panic attack coming on. So we left there, you know, she, she, she kind of chuckled about it. Like, I don't think they understand how bad this anxiety is. They think like I, counting from a hundred to zero intervals of seven, like I can't even, she was having a hard time forming sentences. And so we left there and this was kind of like the, the 13 days, last kind of two weeks, um, every day kind of started the same. It was uh, her at the foot of the bed, crying her eyes out. I can't do this. I can't do this. Panic attacks, me calling a crisis center, them wanting to send, you know, undercover, unmarked kind of vehicles to the house to which she would lose her mind because the neighbors are going to think I'm crazy and everyone's going to think I'm 
you know, a crazy person and, you know, just, so we always opted out of that and opted to go somewhere else for help. And then I was kind of, I had a business at the time, a new business. Um, and you got to understand Alexis was incredibly smart, put together, well-spoken, educated, God-fearing. I mean, she, she was the person that everyone else went to for advice. She was like, there was one constant. It was her. Everybody confided in her. Everyone went to, you know, she was the compass. And, and so it was it's something I think is important to bring up, you know, whenever I have the chance is that like when you have somebody that you know and love um, and they're suffering from any kind of mental health issue, they are not the same person that you know and love. They're capable of things that you never dreamed they were, and they can still talk the same, look the same, but they are not the same. And so it's always important to just, sometimes you have to make the, the, you know, the difficult decision and and do something that you, you know, to protect them from themselves. But um, I was just busy doing, you know, whatever I could do to try to distract her for, you know, because I was getting, you know, I had tons of help from my family. We could leave, you know, our dog who she was inseparable with and, and our daughter with my parents or my godmother, or, you know, and, and take her out. So I would try to take her shopping or, you know, I was getting tickets to, uh, you know, the the Pirates. It was the first time they were in the playoffs in decades and the Penguins were in the playoffs. There was all this excitement around Pittsburgh sports and, you know, friends were saying, hey, you know, I have tickets if you want to just take your mind off things and so we were, I was doing that and I thought I was helping her, um, but I, I really was not. She needed more than a distraction. And I remember we were going to, I believe it was a Penguins game the one night. And it was kind of when it really hit me how, how serious this was when she kind of, we were in the car and it was like all the anxiety subsided. She, she, things felt normal. It was like I had Alexis back for just this minute. And I said, what, you know, you seem so at ease, what's going on? And she said, I just, I know what we have to do, Pop. I know what we have to do. And I said, what? She said, let's find the most amazing adoptive family for Adriana. And we'll just give her to somebody else that can't have a baby. And we'll make sure they're the most perfect family. And we have, we had the most perfect life. And we were so happy before. We can just go back to the life that we had before. And, you know, and I'm sitting next to her and I'm like, I'm, I'm going, Hey, we can't give our daughter up for adoption. Like, there's there's no way. Why not pop? Why not? And I said, this just, it's not even an option. And, but to her, it was like, so obvious, you know, I can't do this. I'm not a good mom. I'm not, you know, like, and I just said, babe, we just can't happen. There's, there's no way. Um, and that's when kind of the alarms went off and I was like, Oh my goodness. Um, you know, she was struggling to sleep and I, and I don't think it's a secret. Everyone knows if you don't sleep, you, you go crazy. And I mean, she was lucky, you know, they gave her, they gave her clonopin and, you know, other stuff to sleep. Um, but nothing worked because her anxiety was so severe she'd be lucky to maybe get an hour of sleep um, here and there. And, you know, in that hour, I'd be, you know, online Googling psychiatrists, psychologists, you know, whoever. And I didn't like, she felt this tremendous amount of shame for other people trying to help her, but she was not like most women in that she actively was making her own phone calls and trying to get better and making appointments with doctors and even tried to go to yoga. Um, what, you know, she just felt like she was this, it was her problem because it was her mind and she didn't want to burden anyone else with, you know, with the task of, of getting better. Um, she was super successful, had a great job and she, she would say, pop, I I don't think I can ever go back to work. I'm never going to get better. I can't even remember anything about what I used to sell. Like I, I, it's like her amnesia, she, she couldn't remember anything. Um, and that's one of the things is, you know, especially with anxiety is the simplest of tasks become so difficult because you overthink them so much. And so everything like going to a doctor's appointment was like, I have to get up. I have to comb my hair. I have to brush my teeth. Then I have to decide what to wear. 
And then I have to figure out like, what am I going to eat for breakfast? But then I actually have to make that breakfast. And, and then I have to deal with the baby on top. And like the simplest way to describe it is like, everything is so difficult that the most, the easiest thing in the world to do that you do without even thinking is breathing, where you actually have to focus on just breathing. So everything became just this overthinking, this huge task. And everything kind of compounded. Every day became worse than the previous. And the measures became more desperate and more dire. Um, And so we ended up, you know, on our fourth wedding anniversary. um, And she was, you know, she was raised a very kind of old school family. And her mom always catered, you know, to, to her dad. And, you know, they, they had multiple homes and it was always like, how did my mom take care of three homes? And how did she, you know, she didn't see, you know, as a child, it was like her house was always perfect. Dinner was always on the table. The house, they were never went to bed with a dish, you know, in the same, I mean, it was not real life, but her mom had help that she didn't recognize because she was, she was just a kid. Um, And she always had a tremendous amount of pressure. She put a tremendous amount of pressure on herself to kind of be the trophy wife, the professional, but her mom never worked. She had a full-time job and to try to do it all. And, um, you know, and as you know, when you have a, when you have a kid, um, especially a newborn at home for the first time, like you can throw all that out the window, like there's no kids. And, And also with her personality with work, like she got she always got the raise. She always got the promotion. She always, there was always like some kind of positive reinforcement for the job that she was doing. And kids don't do that. You know, no one taps you on the back and says, you're doing a good job. It's one of the things that I think we as a society can do is kind of lift moms up and say, I know how hard this is. You're doing a great job or offering, and not just offering to help because most moms are going to say no, but just go over and help. If there's dishes on the, in the sink, do them. If there's laundry, throw a load in. Like we can do more. Societies all over the, all over the world that do such a better job around motherhood than we do here. And I think it's the greatest country in the world, but somehow motherhood has been put, you know, way down low on the totem pole. It, you know, we can, and I know we will do better. It's just getting it out there. Um, and so people understand. So, you know, those, those two weeks, it was our fourth wedding anniversary. I came home from work and I had bought her this beautiful, um, or these beautiful earrings and sent these beautiful flowers to the house. And when I got home, the flowers were there and she was, I remember she was sitting at the dining room table and she was just crying. And I said, what's wrong, sweetie? And she said, I, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve these flowers. I don't do. And I gave her earrings and she said, I don't, I don't deserve these earrings and you can do so much better than me. And I'm never going to get better. And, you know, you're going to get sick of taking care of me and, you know, you're going to end up with someone else anyway, because who would want to be with someone like me and all this stuff. And I I said, why are you talking like that? Like this, I love you. This this is temporary. You're, you know, we're going to, we're going to get better. I promise you. And, she just said, I, you know, it's our anniversary and I can't even put heels on and a dress and go to dinner with you. I just, I'm a horrible wife. And I just said, stop. And so I just said, you know what, we're going to town and, you know, put some comfortable stuff on. And I still can remember to this day, which, I mean, she always looked so beautiful. It did, like, it just didn't matter. And I could tell you from her shoes to her hair, exactly what she looked like. And she looked beautiful. And I said, we're going to town, but we're, we're going to go get help and we're going to try to get better. We're not going, we're not going to go to dinner, but so I, you know, there's three facilities in Western PA that do inpatient psychiatric that have inpatient psych units. And throughout these couple of weeks, um, I just felt like I was always stuck trying to pick like the lesser of the three evils, like which one would not damage her the most, you know, which one had the least amount of stigma tied to it. And so I chose the one that I thought was the the least scary option. And we got to the ER and it was like, we checked in, she looked beautiful, put together, spoke clear, spoke clearly. And they were just kind of like, what are you doing here? And it's like, well, we have a, you know, three week old baby 
she's at my parents' house and, you know, I have this debilitating anxiety. I'm super depressed. I'm, I'm worried I might hurt myself. Um, and so they kept switching us from floor to floor. Like they never, we would just wait in these chairs and wait for someone. They say, oh no, come down here. Till finally we entered a, it was like an all glass room with a, with a door that locked from the outside. So once you got in, you weren't getting out. And when we got in there, we were, um, we were greeted by another, by social worker. Um, and we were talking to her and she was more talking with my wife. And all my wife would say is I'm crazy. I'm crazy. Like you need to keep me here. I'm crazy. And everyone, wherever we went, they would say, no, you're not crazy. You're not like them. You're not crazy. Look at you. And you know, and you're not like them. And, and I remember it was, it was a male doctor. Um, he came in, he was a, you know, emergency psych doctor and he, we we were there for hours and he spoke with her and she was saying like, I really need to be admitted. I really need to be admitted. And he's like, no, you're good. You're good. And so this, my wife goes back to talking with the uh, LCSW and I'm talking with the doctor and I'm like, doc, I don't know what to do. I really don't. I I don't know. She keeps saying she's going to hurt herself. So not, she wasn't saying I'm going to hurt myself. She's saying, I'm going to kill myself. And here's, I'm going to do it. And, you know, he just looked at me and he said, listen, see this all the time. Women like her do not commit suicide in sloppy ways. He said the only way someone like her could ever do it um, would be to asphyxiate herself in your garage using a vehicle or to overdose on pills. He said, so when you get home, get rid of the car keys, get rid of any medications, she'll be fine. Um, she's not like the other people back there. Trust me, you don't want to leave her here. And so me, um, kills me that I trusted him, but I was just naive and it's, you know, you take the doctor's advice. And so that's my advice to other, you know, people that have a loved one suffering with a mental health illness. If it doesn't seem right, it's not right. Um, and you know, your loved one better than any doctor ever could. Um, so sometimes, you know, you have to, you have to stand up, um, and advocate on their behalf. And my wife was not like most where she had no problem saying what was going to happen. So we went home and I did what he told me and she found a sloppy way to do it. And another morning we went to a crisis center, you know, and she was kind of on, the center was on high alert for her they knew like they knew her name they knew who she was they knew what was going on um and we got there and at the time i had, I had a new business i had a used car dealership and uh so i i had obviously i think did what most parents would do i got the biggest safest car <laughs> that, that you could buy to bring our daughter home from the hospital and so i had this big big mercedes um that was like 10 years old but we pulled up in that and my wife was you know, in the parking lot, she never smoked, but she was chain smoking cigarettes. To she just said it helped with the anxiety. And we got to the front door of the crisis center. We walked in, and we go to check in. And the first thing the person at the front check in said was, "You pulled up here in a Mercedes Benz, and you think you have problems." We walked out, and she said, "Nobody's going to help me. Nobody's going to help me." And I said, "No, sweetheart, they have." And we went to this place because they had four psychiatrists on call that day. And seeing psychiatrists is not just here, but nationwide, um, really hard and with really long waits. I think when at that time it was five to six months. I'm sure with the pandemic, much longer now. But um, what we what we ended up. I ended up talking to her going back inside and we went inside and I mean, it was, we were the first people there was early in the morning and all these other people kept coming in and nobody would see her. And so I remember, I think it was around three o'clock. It was, it was late afternoon and they finally called us in the back and we met with the, with a social worker and they asked us a million questions and she answered them all. And it was, it was more or less like looking back, it was like, are you religious? Yeah, well, my, you know, my father's a minister. And, you know, and when they asked her if she was religious, her answer was, it's the only reason why I'm still here. I don't want to burn in a hell for eternity for 
for taking my own life. And they said, well, that's great. You know, at least you have faith. And it was like, are you educated? Yes. I, you know, she graduated with a 4.0 and her, from her master's program. And, you know, do you have a job? Yes, I have a job. And, you know, she did very well at her job. So, you know, financial security, great. And instead of finding out, you know, what they could do to help her, all they did was find reasons why she wouldn't actually do what she was saying she was going to do. They looked at her, they judged her for all the things they thought she was. And so I always say, you know, what does crazy look like? Because she was dressed well, her hair was combed, her teeth were, you know, white and straight. And, you know, she, you know, she spoke clearly, like she's not capable of, like, is there a right way to say I'm going to kill myself? Where it's is it the sane way and the crazy way? And nobody listened to her. And so I remember, I think it was four o'clock when the psychiatrists were finishing and, and one of them came in and said, oh, unfortunately it's four o'clock and, you know, we're finished for the day, but there'll be four more on a Monday and better luck, you know, you'll have better luck seeing one of us if you come back. And she was gone by then. We went to see her OB Oh, no, she passed on Tuesday morning, but it was Monday morning. Instead of going there, we went to an appointment with her OB. Um, I dropped her off. My mom left her there, or my mom met her there, the same OB that, that walked out of the delivery room. And she, she wouldn't let my mom go back in the room with her. My mom waited in the waiting room. And the first um, LCSW we went to when she found out she had PTSD from the delivery you know, had told her the doctor that delivered your baby or didn't deliver your baby. She's a young doctor. It's unacceptable. And you need to tell her she needs to hear it from you that it's unacceptable. Um, but, you know, her thing was when she went in there was I'm going to do what this, you know, what the LCSW said, and I'm going to tell her, like, how could you do this to me? But that was not my wife's job to do that. And that doctor I believe did not take too kindly to my wife questioning her. And my wife had, she had looked, Alexis had looked um, into like on her own, like estrogen patches for hormone replacement therapy, because she had heard that it was a good way for women to an effective way to kind of get out of this, this, this postpartum depression. And so she went in and that was the big thing was, can I do some kind of hormone replacement therapy? Now, this doctor had prescribed her. Unfortunately, that's who prescribes most of the, you know, antidepressants or whatever you might be getting if you experience postpartum depression. If you're one of the one in five moms that goes through this, it, you know, you can't see a psychiatrist. So you have your OB prescribing meds, which drives me crazy. So, so they had put her on Zoloft. And, you know, I've read some crazy statistics, but, you know, double digit percentages of people who are prescribed Zoloft that end up committing suicide if there's a family history of bipolar. And they put my wife on, and that's a big thing for anyone that's listening. If a loved one you know is being prescribed an antidepressant, make sure you ask that doctor to screen them for a family history of mental illness, specifically bipolar. I'm at our facility in our health network, not because it's mandated by law, but everybody gets screened using the MDQ. It's the mood disorder questionnaire and it screens for family history. And that can really save lives by not prescribing certain medications. Uh, but anyway, this doctor put her on Zoloft and about a couple of days prior, and i she didn't have suicidal thoughts until she started taking the Zoloft, but she was, it was always like, Hey, it'll kick in in two weeks and you're going to feel better. So she's telling me, pop, I got to get off this. It's making me feel crazy. And I'm saying, no, you got to listen to your doctors in two weeks. Like it's going to kick in and I can't go back. Uh, but anyone else listening can. So I regretfully told her to stay on these um, pills. And when she went back and said, you know, I keep having these suicidal thoughts because of these drugs, this same doctor, rather than switch her off and put her on something else, she doubled the dose on her. And so she's there with her and she's telling her, why did you 
why did you miss the delivery of my baby? And like, you have to understand my, my wife, she always wanted to be a mom, just like my daughter, but my daughter has more baby dolls. She has more kids than she can't wait to be a mom herself. And, but here she is leaving the hospital in the first act of motherhood. The very, the very first thing she ever did in her mind as a mom was damage our daughter, her daughter. She was convinced that Adrian had brain damage. Um, so much so that we took her for psychological testing. Um, and even when those results came back that she was a perfect normal baby, she would analyze every little thing Adriana did. She holds her thumb. She only looks over her left shoulder. She only, or right shoulder. She only, you know, and she would say, why does she do this? Well, we don't know why babies do what they do, but to her, it was because she was damaged by her and she just could not forgive herself for it. So she's in this appointment and she tells the doctor things she doesn't want to hear. And she says, what, you know, what am I going to do? And the doctor says, you know, you're really not a candidate for hormone replacement stuff or estrogen patches. You know, my advice to you would be to go on birth control and not have any more babies. You're not cut out for this. And I met my mom and her to pick her up. And she got in the car and she was so relaxed. Every ounce of anxiety had completely, completely subsided. And I said, how'd your appointment go? And she told me everything I just told you. And I said, why, how did all this anxiety go away? And she said, I know what I have to do. She said, I'm thinking too far down the road. I just have to stay in the moment. And I naively was thinking, okay, because she was so worried about going back to work and thinking about like, she was stressing herself, worried about things that she didn't have to worry about right now. But I now know that she had, in that appointment, she knew that it would be over soon. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I think for other moms out there that are experiencing, um, really bad anxiety. I, I believe that the amount of anxiety that she was experiencing, I don't know if it's cortisol or whatever, but I think that her breast milk was, was tainted from the stress she was under. So they had, you know, our daughter on, um, like Prilosec or something for acid reflux and stuff, um, you know, at two weeks old. And all she did was cry. She just cried all day long. And it was so stressful for both of us. Um, and she would kind of calm down when I would hold her, I think, because I was a lot calmer than Alexis was. And the calmer she was with me, the worse Alexis felt as a mom. And she would say, how do you do it, Pop? Why is she so good for you and not for me? And, you know, and I remember, so my thing was, you know, my thing is, you know, try, try formula. If your baby's crying and has acid reflux, just try it. My daughter, you know, never had breast milk after five and a half weeks old. And she was a totally different baby from the very first bottle of formula. She was the best baby ever. She slept through the night. She rarely cried. When she, when she was taking breast milk, she never slept and she never stopped crying. So no shame. Just, just try it. Um, so I remember that last night she was in bed and she was, she had so much anxiety. She took a Klonopin and she was trying to get some sleep. So I'm sitting in the baby's nursery and I would just like sit in the little glider chair and put some music on. And, uh, you know, like, I think we were listening to Coldplay and she would just kind of doze off in my arms. But the second I would put her down, she'd wake back up and be like, okay, don't put me down. And so it was late. It was about four o'clock in the morning and my wife came in and she said, Hey pop, will you please come in and lay with me? So I put Adriana down and we got in bed and she said, you're just so good with her. I just don't know how you're such a good dad. And, and I said, sweetheart, I'm really not doing anything special. It's just, I'm just holding her and listening to music. 
I said, sweetheart, you can't do, I can't do this alone. You, you've got to promise me you're not going to do anything. And she said, I'll try, pop out. I, I promise you I won't. And, but she, she rolled over with her back to me and she looked over her shoulder and she, and she said, I love you, pop. And at 10 o'clock on the dot, some crazy stuff happened, but my phone rang. The dog was going crazy. And I just remember waking up and it was like stale air. It was like nothing was moving. And I looked in bed and she wasn't there. And I just got up and I just started screaming, Alexis, Alexis. And the baby was crying her eyes out. And I ran downstairs and I could hear Adriana crying. So I looked at her and she was strapped to the, like the changing table had like things on it. To, so the baby was strapped to the changing table and I'm just screaming, Alexis, Alexis. And I'm not hearing anything. And I went down to the basement. I opened the door. I ran back upstairs. I was screaming out in the front yard, screaming on the back deck. And like, I'm not getting a response, looked in the garage. She wasn't there. And I ran back downstairs um, into the basement. And the basement was unfinished and she just, she had so many clothes, my God. And there were just racks and racks of clothes and she had hung herself. So I couldn't, I couldn't find a phone and I didn't have anything to get her down with. So I ran upstairs and I grabbed a knife. I got her down, got a phone, called 911, um, did whatever I could do to try to save her until the police got there and the ambulance. And when they got there, they were able to get a pulse so you know it's like that you get hope they have a heartbeat they have a heartbeat so i we go to the uh hospital and they have a pulse and then they light flight her to another hospital when i go down there and as soon as i got there one of my best friends my child childhood best friend um his dad was a doctor at the first hospital. And when he heard that what was going on, he came down and he realized it was my wife. And um, he actually somehow beat us to the second hospital. When I got there, he just said, Stephen, I don't need to get your hopes up, but her neck's broken. There's no way she's going to make it. Um, and so she spent the next two and a half days in intensive care there. Um, and it was... I don't know, I guess, to give time for... Alexis was from New Jersey, but she had a lot of family in Florida and friends and family um, got to come see her in the hospital before she passed. But um, I was so sick when this happened, um, physically, emotionally, um, mentally. I just was in this state where I couldn't even breathe. Um, I was vomiting. I couldn't talk. I mean, I was had a lifetime of worries for my daughter. For and I, I was always our our family priest growing up was always. I don't know. He was it's awesome guy, and he always had. Um, he just kind of always had a connection with our family. I'm a triplet, and so I. I had a, my brother and my sister and then we had a younger sister and, but we, everyone always knew us as the triplets and he would always, when we'd leave Sunday mass, he'd say, everyone, please say an extra prayer for the Dia Kelly family and for, for my mom. And, uh, but he showed up at the hospital and just said, get over here. I need to talk to you. And he pulled me into this little room. And in that moment, um, everything stopped. It was like the most amazing feeling. It's indescribable. I've talked to some other people that have said they've had similar experiences, but I had this clarity come over me in this stillness, this calmness that, I mean, I have goosebumps right now talking about it. Um, it was just unbelievable. Um, 
and we talked and I just, and it was, I was so calm and it was like clear as day what I had to do. And I say it all the time, but I don't know if we talked for 20 minutes or two hours or it was like time stopped, but I know when it ended that I didn't, didn't want this piece to, to end. So I grabbed a pen and paper and I just locked myself in a bathroom at the hospital and I sat on the floor and everything, it was like, we're, we're going to start a foundation and we're going to have a black tie gala and I'm going to throw the most badass birthday party every single year for, for Alexis and all of her friends and family. And it's, they're going to travel from wherever they live and they're going to put their best clothes on just like Alexis liked to do. And we're going to dance and we're going to have fun and we're going to celebrate her and we're going to raise money. And I just remember thinking like it's 2013 in the greatest country in the world. How is there no help for somebody that's so brutally honest and desperately seeking help? How is this possible? And, you know, then I'm, panicking about like, what about when my daughter gets pregnant one day? You know, is this going to happen again? And this, just all these things. And it was like, I just knew that we had to build a place where I like a facility that would have saved my wife's life. And then, so I had all that mapped out. And then it was like, she's perfectly healthy, 30 year old woman. You know, what about organ donation. And so then it was like, well, we'll donate her organ. So I asked her parents if they minded and they, you know, they said no. So I think seven people it was kind of funny because originally the doctors thought because she had been in ICU for so long that they would be able to use her heart and none of her other organs, but they ended up being able to use all of her organs except for her heart. Um, Within a couple of days of her passing, um, all the recipients got their organs, her organs. And I don't know, from, from that moment on, um, the advocacy work I do just kind of became the most important work I do outside of raising Adriana. But it was just like, and she was always good at like telling me what I should be doing. But in that moment, I knew what I was supposed to be doing. Um, and I can't describe it, but the work with the foundation, all the, the opportunities to share the story, the change that I've seen happen, um, it's unbelievable. Um, you know, and I think Pittsburgh in 2013 was the same as every other city in America. For any new, you know, expecting or or new mom and family, but I, I, you know, I can say with confidence that I believe Pittsburgh is the safest pit city in America for expecting moms and and new moms, and um, that makes me happy. And then to see it catch on to other cities, and to see other facilities opening, and you know people like Christina, who you spoke with and all these other, you know, advocates and people I've met and all the friends um, that are like family now that, that I've met on this journey. Um, it's really bizarre. It's like, I have strangers that reach out to me through social media. And it's, it's, it's a lot of times it's not even related to maternal mental health. It's just, you know, they're going through a tough situation and they reach out and ask for help. And it's like, I think it's amazing to be able to share my perspective um, with people, if it can help or inspire them to, you know, stand up for what they believe in. Um, if they see inadequacy somewhere and they want to make a difference, it's like, it feels good to be able to offer them and that, you know, that advice. And so for me, it's not, I do anything to have her back, but you know, there's, there's a silver lining in everything. Um, and I'm no different than anyone else. I mean, we all, every single human being on earth is going to experience loss. I don't know. Maybe I offer unique perspective because I think 
I remember when it first happened, everyone would be like, you need to go to this widowed, you know, support group. And I'm like, I'll be 40 years younger, 50 years younger than everyone there. Like, what am I going to do at a support group with a bunch of old people? You know? And so, but thankfully I have the best friends, the best family. And, you know, I, you know, despite what's happening in the world and all the bad stuff, there's so much good. There's people who are fundamentally so good. Um, you know, I really, I, I get all the credit and I always get to tell the story, but you know, where I live and the, my friends, my family, our community, they rallied behind me and our cause so much. Um, and they've stepped up for my daughter and they've kept my wife's spirit alive and her legacy and the health system. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world to, you know, have a health insurance company and hospital system that have really just made my dream come true with all of this and, and more. So, you know, it's crazy to look back and to think of the notes, you know, on that notepad in the hospital and every single thing I wrote down has happened and more. And um, so I hope I'm doing my part to, to raise, you know, powerhouse little advocate in my daughter. Um, We'll see. But uh, yeah, so to see the change is unbelievable. Um, it's certainly tragic, but so much beauty's come from it. And when the first time you hear, you know, somebody who your story's touched, you know, you hear their parents or someone that loved that person call you and say, you saved my daughter's life or you saved my wife's life. And if it wasn't for you sharing your story, I don't think, or them, they themselves saying, if it wasn't for you sharing your story, I don't, I don't think I'd be here. It's powerful. And it like really keeps the fire burning to, to, to not, you know, to not stop the work. Advocacy work is the most rewarding work in the world. And it will reward you with the most amazing friends. I tell everyone, if you don't have a lot of friends, get behind a cause you believe in and go, you know, jump on board because you will have more friends than ever. Um, the one thing advocacy work does not do is pay. But it that gives is you, true. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it does. <laughs> That's very it, true. It does bless you with the riches that are way, way more important than any money. Um, and it really has just been the absolute. It has kept me so connected to my wife and my daughter and her family and my family and our friends. Um, you know, I still like a crazy person talk to her every day because I'm like, okay, this, you know, I have an opportunity to do this or I could do that. And what, what should I be doing? And then I never say no to anything. So I'm like, babe, give me a break here. But, but the phone, thankfully it was a slow year with the pandemic, but it's ringing again. And thanks to people like you. And I'm like, okay, it feels good. I'm back in the saddle here. So I, you know, I, I'm looking forward to, to, to ramping up, hopefully bigger and, better than ever before. I don't plan on slowing down. Um, and that, you know, that's my advice to any listener. There's nothing more fulfilling in this world than, than, than helping with a cause um, that you truly believe in. And I've been able to see so many people, you can donate time, you can, there's so many ways to give back. And I think that's what the foundation's done really well. We've raised, you know, a good amount of money enough to pull this off with people that don't fit the mold for, you know, philanthropy. And I think it's been a lesson for everybody. And I think philanthropy, I think giving back is like at its core, it's so contagious. Some people just need that nudge one time to make the selfless choice and to put their energy into to giving back. And once you do it once, it's like, you feel great. And it's, it's contagious, get, you know, philanthropy. So it's, it's really, really cool. And I would urge anyone listening to, you know, Get out there and give back. For sure. It is very contagious. Very contagious. It doesn't pay, but it's very contagious. And it's <laughs> and it's great. No, it really is. And I, I second that, Stephen. Anyone listening, you know, now is a great time to really get behind some of that stuff. And, you know, so many nonprofits are hurting right now too because of the pandemic and it's hard to do events and it's, you know, everything is going virtual. I know, I think you couldn't do the birthday party right? Because of the pandemic. Yeah. Yeah. This is, this is, it's a shame, but it's two galas now, uh, April, 2020 and April, 2021, we canceled, but we are going to blow it out 2022 for sure. I might have to get a flight up there and uh, join the party for that one for sure. Yeah. 
I have to say something really quick, only because I, I truly believe that in this country, there is so much more pressure and so much expected out of so much more expected out of moms than dads. And being that I get to play both roles, I think I have a very good understanding of disparity, I'll call it. But moms are still expected to do what their mothers and grandmothers did. There is such a tremendous amount of work that goes into just getting kids up and getting them ready for school and, you know, dropping them off. And then when they get, you know, then to run home and get ready real quick, squeeze, a, you know, you're working for a couple of hours only to get them ready for school, you know, ready after school and then to sports, whatever, this, that. And I feel like most moms do it. I think dads do now more now than ever, but I think dads, I think we can step it up and we can do better. I, you know, and that's one thing I hope dads, you know, if you're a woman listening to this, make your husband listen to it after we can do better and we should do better. Maternal mental health is not a women's health issue. I think that's why the foundation has taken off and the story has been so well received. Is that because I am a man speaking up for a women's health issue, but it's not a women's health issue. It's a family health issue. When mom is sick, everybody suffers and nobody suffers more than the children. It's also important to understand that the sooner you get help, there's no shame in it. The sooner you get your life back, you know, and, and the kids pay the ultimate sacrifice growing up in homes with women that go untreated. It almost always ends in divorce. Kids grow up in broken homes, you know, getting help and treating this, it gives children a shot at, a, at the childhood they deserve. And you will get better with help. And it is your responsibility as a man to be there along the way. You know, twice as many women this year will be diagnosed, probably more with the pandemic, with postpartum depression or perinatal mental health disorder than breast cancer. And I'm willing to bet that most of the listeners, if their wives came home and said, I have breast cancer, they would sell the house, sell the cars, travel, go anywhere in the country or the world for that matter, to make sure they had the best treatment options for her. But for some reason, when it comes to mental health, it's like call a psychiatrist, psych you know, call your psychologist, go talk to them, and they're stuck doing it alone. If you can support your partner and be a part of the healing with them, that's it. That's perfect. I think think that needed to be said. So I appreciate you <laughs> um, saying that. So thank you so much, Stephen. This has been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Bye.